All right, y'all. Uh, welcome to REF. My name is Simon Stokes. If I've met you, I would love to meet you at some point. Um, one of the things I want to say before we really kind of dive into this is that RUF is for anybody. Like, I know that there are lots of people who are in various places in their spiritual journey here. You don't have to be a Christian to be here. That's why we do uh, all kinds of events and all kinds of different things. At large group, I preach from the Bible. We talk about Jesus. But if you go to something like 80s skate night, like, there's not going to be like a 20-minute pause where like, we sing worship songs and there's some sort of like, bait-and-switch message or anything like that. Uh, same goes for Guys Night. If you come to Guys Night at my house, which I would, I would love for you to come if you're interested, uh, we will just be hanging out, grilling, eating, and watching Mad Max Fury Road and enjoying the glory that is that movie. And the expression on Tom Hardy's face is he's mounted to the front of a car. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. But anyway, <laughs> I love it. Um, anyway, I just want to say that as we come in and we get ready to go in this, because I think that's really important to know that this is a place for anybody, and for everyone as they come, wherever they're coming from. So, that said, let me throw this at you. Imagine, imagine that you were talking to a friend about a workout regimen that they'd kind of been trying out. Maybe strength training, getting ready for a marathon. That's the thing that people do here. Uh, trying to get shred for spring break. <laughs> That's a, also a thing. Uh, <laughs> whatever. It's a hardcore workout. And you're talking to your friend and you ask, you know, how is this going with you? How, like, how's your workout going? What if the reply was, well, not so great. I'm on one week with exercise and then I'm off two or three I know that I also will almost completely take off the summer because everything with internships, travel, whatever, is just going to get collapsed into like my schedule. And in intense times of school, I drop it because, you know, things are crazy and it's hard to have a regimen. And so I'm like, exercise. I'm not like exercising. And I already know that I'm pretty much just going to eat pizza and order insomnia cookies at 2 a.m. And, you know, if I'm really being honest, unless the stars absolutely aligned. I just cannot, and I just cannot help but go out and exercise distraction-free without any kind of internal, external care or worry, then I'm really not going to run or lift or swim. But to be honest, like, I'm thinking about dropping the whole thing. I'm just not seeing the results that I thought I'd see at this point in the game. I'm wondering if it's still worth it. Like, I was promised results, and I'm not getting results. My times are bad. Everything is really heavy. Like, it hurts, like, not so much here as in, like, here. And on the outside, as you're talking to your friend, you might be like, huh, that's crazy. Uh, I don't, can't believe that's not working out for you. But inwardly, you would have to be thinking something like, this person has no idea how the human body works. Like, of course you're seeing no results. You're not exercising, and you're completely living off junk food. But think about this. We, and I mean we... I'm in this too, approach so much of the care for our souls in a way that we would never care for our bodies, right? Like, I go weeks sometimes without praying, reading. I don't go to church for a long time when it's really intense in school. Like, all kinds of things. They just get in the way and we just kind of drop it and we get frustrated. That I just feel like I'm making progress here. And I really want this to be clear in our minds as we jump into this tonight because the target audience for the book of Hebrews as we're going through it is not written to people who are kind of out, who grew up outside of the religion of the Bible. Like, 
these people did not come from like kind of a, a background where everyone around them was like an atheist and somehow they were the ones who stumbled into a community of God's people. Like that's not who received this. These are people who grew up in the synagogue. They loved the Old Testament. They loved the temple. And they found Jesus and they saw how he connected all those things that they loved and they loved him too. And the writer here is saying that those are the very people who can fall into unbelief. And there are ways in which you cannot take care of your soul because you just you don't understand that like, this is an important thing to do. Or that there's this yucky thing inside of you called sin that's just going to move you in a direction that's away from God. And that can just happen so quickly. And so I want to hit on two things tonight. Just two things. I want to look at this. What's the problem of unbelief? What's the problem with unbelief? And what's the answer to unbelief? What's the problem of unbelief and what's the answer to unbelief? First of all, let's look at the problem. Let's look at the problem. Think about why the writer of Hebrews lays out this really long quote that we read here. He's reading from the psalm. What is his reference to? What is he talking about with like bodies falling into the wilderness? Like This is pretty grim, right? It's from the Old Testament where God has freed his people from slavery. He's brought them out of the Exodus. Um, if you're, that's the second book of the Bible if you're familiar with it. They've seen God do these incredible miracles. They've seen Him defeat the most powerful military in the world. They see Him literally open a way through the sea so that they can go through when it seems like there is no hope for them. And He's fed them with this sort of bread from heaven so they don't starve in the desert. Like They have seen and had these incredible experiences with God. Like things that you and I will probably never have if we're really honest. (laughs) And which the rest of the Old Testament is going to look back at as kind of this definitive time of salvation for God's people. Like, if you want to know what it looks like for God to really show up and save people, look at Exodus. And the tragedy for these folks is that they don't make it. They have every opportunity, every experience, I mean, every proof that you might want. Like, how many of us have sat and said, God, if you could just show me like something to make me believe, like that would be very helpful right now. These people had bread falling out of the sky and feeding them. Like that's a pretty good sign that like God cares about you and is on your side, right? Like they had it and they did not make it. And to us, the writer is holding these people up and he's saying, "Be on guard. Experience alone is not enough. Do not let this be you." Because there's a possibility in the past where you've had some sort of like big God experience. Or maybe you've come from a good family and been a very moral, good person, but still not make it. Like, take care, brothers, is what he says. He's addressing them as fellow Christians, but this is not people who are kind of questioning theism. They're simply considering returning to Judaism. Like, we think that the way of Jesus of Nazareth seems to fill the Old Testament is like totally fascinating. But we're planning on returning to living by the law and the sacrificial system. And the writer is saying that's unbelief. Like you are saying that you're love, loving the God of the Old Testament, but you think nothing of the greatest thing that he ever did and intentionally pulling yourself out of that story, he's written into history, like, that's dangerous. I, how does that happen? Let's put some like, legs on this thing. How does that happen? What's the tra- trajectory for that? He says, beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. All right, if you were deceived... How would you know that you're deceived? Like, that's, that's part of what's so tricky about it, right? Like, when I'm being deceived, I have no idea that I'm being deceived, do I? Like, 
I'm just being taken for a ride, and until that ride is over, I'm just kind of along for it as long as it's got to go. Because sin can say, here's what's reasonable. This is what's in your best interest. This is what makes sense. Here's what's smart, and it's fooling us. Like, all of us, all the time. And it's just, it can constantly do that, because there's just something in our heart that is not only listening to this, but is drawn towards it. It's a quick quote from Martin Luther, the uh, reformer from the 15th century. Very, very good insight into the human heart here. He says, It is rightly called the deceitfulness of sin because it deceives under the appearance of the good. Like, sin looks good. This phrase, the deceitfulness of sin, ought to be understood in a much wider sense so that the term includes, listen to this, even one's own righteousness and wisdom. For more than anything else, one's own righteousness and wisdom deceive one in working its faith in Christ. Since we love the flesh and the sensations of the flesh and also riches and possessions. But listen to this. But we love nothing more, like more than the desires of the flesh and being rich. We ardently love our own feelings, judgment, purpose, and will. Especially when they seem to be good. It's called the deceitfulness of sin because we love to be the people who think that we're the ones who get it and we're just kind of trucking along. And who, who, like, who are we to not be writing this? Have you ever had this experience? Like, have you ever, is this ever you? Like, where you, you're about to do something and you know that on one level that if anyone else were to tell me that they were planning on doing this thing, I would tell them that I thought that was the worst idea in the world. But when it comes into my head, I think it's a pretty good idea. Have you ever had that? And you look back later and you're just like, why did I do that? Because you got deceived. Part of the sequence of sin is that sometimes when you think you're being the most shrewd, you're really being taken for a ride. Like, we're not on opposite sides of this. I'm pro-God. I don't think that you know, dating somebody who cares nothing for Christ will affect my faith. I'm strong. I can totally do this. But we're not on opposite sides of this. I grew up with God. I love God. I know that he just wants me to be happy. Like if you're moving away from Jesus, you're being deceived. And the Greek word here for take care means you must constantly be on the watch. Like we would never think of our physical condition. If I just stand here and do nothing, I'll stay the same. Like I don't have to work out anymore. I've achieved peak physical fitness here. Like we would never think that, right? Like if you've ever worked out consistently and then stopped working out for like six months, like you know that like, that goes away pretty quick. I mean, and let me tell you, when you're in your 30s, it goes away really quick. Um, <laughs> Christmas was not good to us. Uh, <laughs> well, it kind of was, it kind of wasn't. <laughs> Look, if that's true of our physical condition, then how much more true is it if there's just something inside of us that's constantly drawn to being deceived, constantly drawn to being pulled away from Jesus? It can even be saying something like, I love God, I'm pro-God, I love the idea of this God who's this kind, sort of grandfatherly person in the sky who's thinking good thoughts towards the world. But is he actually somebody who's involved in my day-to-day? Is he someone who is, I don't know what the Bible calls it, like holy or like who judges individual people and who doesn't acquit guilt to people, like, and that one day like he passes judgment on everyone unless he judges his son in your place. Like, do I really think those things? Like, I know that's kind of what this is about, but that's really not me. Like, is that unbelief? Like, yes. Does God call us to move away from that and towards Jesus? Yes. And y'all, this can bubble up in so many different ways too. 
It can be this felt sense that the God of the Bible just does not like people like me. Like whatever that is, fill in the blank there. But he just doesn't like people like me. Which if you read the Bible, you see that you know, this is for everybody. Every tribe, tongue, nation, race. Everybody is pulled into God's plan here. Or it can be this sense that unless you're doing a lot of evangelism, or you're this really spiritually upright person who's not committing the big sins, whatever those are, or you've got this incredible, unless you've got this incredible discipline to kind of always hit spiritual goals, that you're going to be this disappointment to God. This sense that unless you're outgoing and welcoming to people and always connecting new folks, that you're just not doing this thing right. There's all these expectations and you live under this rain cloud of guilt and disappointment. And you need to know that God is not disappointed in you. That He looks at you and He enjoys you as one of His people. And the story of the Bible is not about the stuff that you're not doing. It's that God loves you so much that He died for you and He's making you whole and saving you based upon what He's done on your behalf. Like that's what the whole story is about. But we can be deceived and say, no, it's not. Like, this can't be for me. There's just something in us that just, it's hard to believe at times. I want to um, tell this story here. It's, it's something that has happened actually to someone that we know, but it's a sad and real story that happened to somebody. There was a guy a few years ago who was kind of wrapping up at a pretty good school somewhere. And he was working to kind of get into med school and med school applications went out and then acceptance letters came in. And he tells his parents and his girlfriend, like, I've been accepted to med school. And then he proposes to his girlfriend and she says yes and they get engaged and get married. And they move across the country to another city and they rent a house. And for a whole year, he's in med school and he goes away every day to med school and he stays out late and he studies and he ha- they have friends over and they'll hang out for a while and then he has to go away somewhere else in the house and kind of hole himself up in a room and study some more. And his wife tells herself, you know, this is hard. This is a hard pace for us, but, you know, I married someone who's a first-year med student. Like, what do you expect? And we'll kind of get through this thing and in the end he'll be a doctor. But imagine everyone's surprised when it comes out that this guy's not actually in med school. And all the hours studying and the moving across country and the strain on the marriage as he's like going through this rigorous thing, all of it is for naught. I mean, can you imagine that? And you can you can hear that story and your jaw can just drop. Like how could you do something that you know has zero chance of success. Like, at some point, someone's going to realize you're not in med school. But spiritually speaking, that is a possibility for all of us. The seed of every sin lies in my heart. But man, especially, there are just things that I'm deceived into doing where I know that on the surface level, if someone were to tell me this is a bad idea, I would say, yeah, probably. And then you go and do it anyway. Because sin is deceitful. So if that's the problem, what's the answer? What helps us deal with the deceitfulness of sin? Look at how he says here, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Like You've got to have the word of God, but what else helps us not to be duped by that yuckiness? One another. Exhorting one another. Later in Hebrews, in a place where the writer is definitely referring back to this passage, he says... Deal with the deceitfulness of sin and live the life of faith how? Like longer quiet times, a three-day spiritual retreat, more discipline? Like no. He says, don't neglect the habit of meeting together. 
Like, just be together. And if that yucky thing inside us is going to get held in check, we need to be in each other's lives. Like, y'all, it doesn't matter what past experience you have. If you want to persevere and be on guard against the deceitfulness of sin, do not give up on meeting with one another. Like, and y'all, this is totally me as I say this. We can come into this thing and say, I can learn this on my own. It's more efficient for me and not as messy for me if I just kind of chug along and do, do this on my time. Like, I hate group projects. I always end up doing more work than anyone else. And frankly, I'm just not going to do that with Jesus too. Like, that can totally be the tendency of our hearts. It's just more convenient for me to do this on my own. It's hard to involve myself in real community. Because when I do, I can't control my schedule well, right? I can't knock things out like I intended to knock them out. And what's the writer saying here, though? That seems reasonable. It is unbelievably dangerous. Because we need other people to help us see where we're being deceived. And a lot of that section starts there. Beware that sense in yourself that says, I just need to get away and create enough space for me and from these people to get the things straight in my life that I need to get straight. Beware that. The essence of sin is to be focused on yourself. And this can mean becoming so focused on my feelings and my thoughts that I refuse the very thing that I need to get help. It's interesting, I know, because I'm preaching to the people who are actually here, right? Like, we're together, we're here, we're exhorting one another. Okay, I'm good because I'm here, right? But maybe you're sitting there and thinking, all right, well, I come to stuff like this really because it's more of a habit. I grew up doing this. Or I don't really want to be here. It's just, it's getting harder for me to come. What do we do with that? What are the barriers here? How do you get more of one another in your life? I think intentional built-in relationships. You know, we don't have the monopoly on busyness. These folks, 2,000 years ago, they were busy too. Like, they had to bake their own bread. They didn't have washing machines. Like, there's a lot of stuff they had to do. And what he's hammering here together is the importance of meeting with one another. The importance of things like RUF and large group and community groups. And the importance of being involved in a local church. And seeing old people worship with you. And hearing their experience of the Christian life. And seeing little kids. And you need to put into something of their lives as well. Like That is an important part of your spiritual growth. We have to be doing those things. Look. One thing I think to think about is this. I think it's safe to say that in America, and I mean, maybe not all of us here are Americans, but I think most of us probably are. In America culture in general, is certainly true in my life, that feeling in control is not important to us. Feeling in control is sacred to us. And it's when we have this feeling of control in the midst of the madness of our lives that, like, I feel the closest to shalom. Like, real human flourishing and peace and growth, this is the way that it should be, like, when I have that control. Which means that a meeting like this can be very threatening to that sense of control. Because you just can't switch it to another channel. And you can't pause it. You could excuse yourself, but there's a sense in which I come here in here by myself or with friends. And that even if you come in a group, that you're thrust into a larger group and you have no control of who else will be here, Right? You have no control over what we sing or whether it's a song that you like or not. You have no control if you're going to be interested in the sermon or if it's going to be boring. 
that I can't control how I feel. I can't control if someone will ask me to do something or ask me for something. If we think of control as a sacred thing, then meetings like this are a horrible place to be. But maybe that's the point. Because you know the secret, don't you? That we're not in control. That God is in control and we just sometimes feel like we're in control. And then there are a lot of times when we feel what's true, which is that we're not in control. And in this weird, powerful way, I think we need each other to to remember the gospel in the midst of that. That we need each other's presence to keep that yucky thing inside of us and help us, instead of running to this thing that gives us more control, to run to this thing that's more real. Where God, in His truth, is showing us, you're not in control and I love you. You know, in the scripture last week, we read Psalm 22. It's quoted in Hebrews 2 and it says... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. You realize that that psalm is fulfilled by Jesus in our midst. That he's regarding us as his brothers and our sisters. And he's in our midst. And when he joins us and he raises his voice in our midst, he's guiding us into worship. And he's guiding us to worship him. And whether we feel that that's happened, the scripture says that it has and it does. It's actually true of us here. Now, or when you go to church. And if all you needed was just kind of good, solid, biblical gospel content, and yeah, I'll go to occasional large group, but then someone said, well, it just works better for me to kind of be on my own, listen to a podcast, this sermon, I can exercise and multitask and make lists, and I'm loving the stuff the preacher is saying, and that just works better for me. Like, if that's all you needed, I would say good for you. Like, that seems like a very streamlined way to get everything done that you need to get done. But if that's you, and you avoid being with one another in worship because it's more efficient to schedule yourself and your priorities, will you get Jesus in the midst of us, worshiping with us, calling us His brothers and His sisters before His Father? No. No, you won't. There's nothing like it. For all of our problems and mixes up with rooms, uh, which is not on us, They scheduled a one-time class in Murphy tonight. But for all of those things where we just don't have any control over stuff, the irony is that we might want to pull away from community to get closer to God, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. That to do so is to be deceived. So what does that mean? Here's my appeal to you in this. I'm not commanding this. I'm not shoehorning small groups under the Ten Commandments here, but here's my appeal. That if you are not already part of a community group somewhere, it doesn't have to be here, but somewhere if you're not part of a community group, then consider joining one of our community groups. Consider it. And if the times don't work for you, then start a community group. We have the content, we have the training, we have the support you need to help do that. You like hanging out with your friends all the time, and you're going to hang out with them anyway. Why not just throw an hour Bible study in there where you learn how to love God and be better friends to one another? And then you study the Bible and you do socials and service projects and you work more of real community into your life and see if you aren't feeling trained and shaped and grown in your connection to God. And I especially want to say this to you, to some of you out here. Because some of you come in here and you feel incredibly guilty because you've looked at something like porn this week. 
And you need to know that Jesus' perfect record of never looking sinfully at another person, whether male or female, is yours. And because of that, you're empowered to deal with your guilt and say no to that temptation. But in order to do that, to tap into that power, you just need another person to help you deal with the deceitful things in our hearts that says, you'll be fine on your own. You can do this by yourself. Not forever, but just for now. And then that now becomes a very long time. You need someone to help you believe the gospel in the midst of those things. You need community. Could community groups be a part of your, that work of God in your life? Because I think you can hear arguments for this stuff. You can be part of, I don't know, a book club or a reading club. You can read Wikipedia articles on Jesus, what he's done. But until you're actually loved by people who believe that and who care for you with that love, not a lot of this is going to make sense. Do you want this to make sense? This is not squeezing another thing into a busy schedule. This is me asking you to consider inviting one another into your lives to help you find the freedom to become the person that God made you to be. The end the deceitfulness of sin with one another. So I'll end with this. Um, maybe this is a, a weird image to end with, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> you know, illustrations. Um, <laughs> but there was a movie about 10 years ago that came out. Uh, it was an M. Night Shyamalan movie called Signs. It was like crop circles and aliens, which is like everything good in American cinema. Like, it's just right there. It's all contained in that bubble of crop circles and alien invasions. And it's got, it had Mel Gibson in it. And in it, he's a single dad. I think his brother-in-law was Joaquin Phoenix. And they were kind of living... Raising his kids, a, a little boy and a little girl, in this farmhouse. And there's a detail in the movie, almost kind of like a subplot, where the little girl in there is constantly taking sips of water, like glasses of water, and she'll take a sip and she'll say, Ah, this is too this is too thick. Or give me another glass, and she'll take a sip for that and say, This, uh, this is dusty. And she'll get another glass, and she'll take a sip of that, and she'll say, Ah. This doesn't taste right. And she's leaving all these glasses of water all over the house. Like everywhere. Kitchen tables, on the TV, the nightstands. Like they're scattered everywhere in the house. Subplot there. Just hold on to that. Um, (laughs) As the movie goes on, humans and aliens get into it. They're fighting. Uh, There's a dust up. The house gets wrecked along the way. The aliens get cleared out. The aliens get left behind. And it's one of those movies that turns out to have like kind of two endings. The aliens are defeated. They're going away. The end of the movie, Mel Gibson is kind of putting the house together. And he's wheeling a TV from one room back into the living room in the house. And he's putting the TV against the wall. And he leans down and he places it there. And he sees in the dark screen of the television behind him one alien that's gotten left behind. And it's just standing there behind him heavily breathing, and his son is in its arms, and it's got its claws over his son. And you know, this is serious. And he turns around, and as he turns, the alien moves, and it bumps a glass of the, one of the waters that's in, everywhere in the house, and it falls on its shoulder, and it just burns its skin like battery acid. And there's this moment where you're like, oh man, what's going to happen? And then the 
the camera pans out and you see all these glasses full of water and you're just like, this alien is toast. He's dead. <laughs> what does that have to do with the book of Hebrews? <laughs> Let's pray. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> all right for real what does that have to do with the previews um, here's all these discards this one doesn't taste right this one's too dusty this one is just too thick and there's this threat that no one sees coming and what's the answer all the discards I think we have been in this room together long enough to have a little bit of history. And our tendency might be, you know, she rubs me the wrong way. That guy comes on too strong. She's socially awkward. That guy got a bid. I did not. He held me cord one day in the pit and tried to hook me into a service project for like half an hour. (laughs) We don't click. Like, y'all, we can have that. Or you have that sense that I'm clicking with some of these people and I'm discarding others along the way. And the writer is saying, what about when that threat that no one saw coming shows up in your life? What's the answer? It's one another. It's the discards. Christ is the great answer, but we experience so much of His love and power and truth through one another that to discard each other is foolish. And my exhortation to you tonight is to build what we're doing in. Build community groups in. Build coffee and meals and hospitality with one another in. Our hearts will begin to say, you know, take a break from this for a month. When midterms come along, when things get busy, just take a break and then I'll come back when I'm refreshed. But when will you be refreshed? Don't you need these people to do that? What will happen to your heart along the way? It will harden. You'll be deceived. Don't let that happen. Build this in. That's my message for y'all tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you send your Son and He is in our midst. Lord, that He guides us to worship you. That He guides us uh, in worship itself. But He sings with us, that He's promised that where two or more are gathered, that there He is as well. And Lord, there's so many more than that here tonight. Lord, I pray that as we leave, that we would leave with Christ. As we leave, we'd leave with one another and we'd experience more of His love, His kindness, His patience, His peace through each other. Lord, that we would build these things into our lives. God, not because we need more things to do, But God, because we need to become more of the person that you made us to be. More like your son Jesus. More whole, more free, more healed. Would you help us do that now and forever? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.